If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today I've got a special treat for you all. I've got Chris Carnes from Bat Books for Beginners on with me as we talk about the comic property of the Bat Murderer by DC Comics. But before any of that happens, I've got an excellent interview with Alexander Shebel. I'll discuss with him his music career, his inspiration, background, and a brand new Soundtrack Alley intro. It's all today, and it starts now. So today I've got Chris Carnes with me as we talk about the Bat Murderer. But before we start talking about that comic, I've got the special interview with Alexander Shebel. I'll discuss with him about his composing career, his influences, and other projects he's worked on. Also, we'll talk about how he came to the completion of Soundtrack Alley's new theme. So without further ado, here's the interview. I am Randy Andrews, and I'm here with Alexander Shebel. Uh, Alexander, it's good to have you on my show. Uh, it's great. It's great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. Um, so I'd like to get the interview started with asking you about your career in composing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, what What would you like to know about me and my career? I'm uh, I, st I started piano with piano lessons at the age of uh, six, and uh, growing up in Austria, Europe, uh, where I live, um, piano playing and music has a has a great tradition. Uh, and uh, yes, that's basically my musical background. But um, the composing. Um, in the interest in composing um, wasn't before I watched, and that's, uh, I know it's a bit cheesy, but it's uh, when I watched uh, James Horner's uh, Kral in cinema. That was uh, like an epiphany for me. I was eight years or nine years old, uh, and the year was 1982, I think, and I, I uh, listened to this uh, incredible soundtrack and I, 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 I was just blown away. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is a phenomenal score. I, I really like it as well. It is. So, yes, it is. It is. 
when did you stop studying piano? Uh, I stopped studying piano uh, at the age of 14, I guess. Uh, that was when girls were becoming more and more interesting. <laughs> and uh, yes, and um, I, but I, didn't stop i didn't stop uh, making music uh, i i just switched to another instrument i i switched to synthesizer workstations um that a teacher of mine rec uh, recommended uh, to me and i just uh, used them to experiment with sounds and i played film and tv themes and video game music uh, I listened to them and and I, I knew them uh, quite well and then I played them with the synthesizers and tried to uh, come very close to the to the original sound. That was lots of fun and I think that was what shaped my interest in in media music in general. fantastic yes uh, do you do you know the defender of the crown music it's a it's it's a very very uh, what a very famous theme at the time uh, for a, a commodore 64 um, or amiga uh, game um, it was very medieval and knights and to uh, tournaments and 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 ladies at the fire and and, and such things it was a re very nice game back then was it was it enjoyable to work on it was enjoyable. I, 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 I just, I just did it for fun, and 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 I did it um, because I liked the sound, I liked the music, and uh, it had a fascination for me, and and that's why I did those. I, I did, I did a number of them. So that's just one of them. Yes. All right, all right. So uh, let's move on to the next uh, question that I have for you. Um, what has influenced you the most, or even? had a minor inspiration even such as crawl 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, generally, uh, growing up in the 1980s and having watched all those mov- movies that are considered classics today, I think that has influenced and shaped my taste for music and my my f- my feel how I feel about those scores uh, quite a lot. Um, listening, I, 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 li- I listen to those um, scores firsthand in cinema. I, 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 st- I kind of studied those uh, movies and, and how music was used to make the most of these movies. Um, that, that knowing those movies and those um, scores in and out, uh, that's certainly something that, that shaped me. Also, there was not a single uh, event that, that influenced me beside Kral, but it was uh, all those movies uh, in the 1980s that um, influenced my style and my how I feel about movies and move and music. All right. Well, um, the next question that I have for you, sometimes I've gotten some really interesting results with this question because some people didn't know exactly who their favorite composer is. So who is yours, Alexander? Uh, it's a tough question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, alive or dead? <laughs> Uh, let's start with dead. Mm, yes, uh, I made up my mind about that uh, some time ago. I, I think it is Jerry Goldsmith. What what I admire about him is he took really bad films and turned them into uh, okay ones or, or good ones with his music. He he added beauty and elegance to to any movie that he that he worked on and and that's a very fascinating thing to do and and you see that if you if you watch those those movies that are not all of them are, are good but but his music adds something to 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 them uh, and it's 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 a magical thing to see and and that's why Jerry Goldsmith is is my favorite composer I think of all time. I mean it's a it's really a tough question and and um it's not that I like Jerry Goldsmith's music uh so much more than say James Horner's or John Williams's but um and he isn't that uh, apart from that um uh, fortunately but uh Jerry Goldsmith just um did something for the for the me- for the medium he worked with and that's that's the fascinating thing and that's also be- uh, yes uh, that's uh, yeah and that's why why my music has a lot of references to goldsmith i i must admit <laughs> Thank you. 
Oh, well, that's good though. Um, cause one of my, one of my top favorite movies is Planet of the Apes. And I was really impressed with how Jerry Goldsmith, uh, used like different, uh, symbols and tools to create these different, uh, sounds for that score. Yes, yeah, that's that's what Goldsmith did. He always invented a, a particular sound for for a movie, and and that's what what impresses impressed me very much, uh, because it also added something unique to the to the movies he worked with. He had he always had his 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 elements, uh, but but there was also. Uh, always one or two uh, unique things about uh, the soundtracks he provided that made the movies unique, and that's that's something that's also totally him. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so how about alive composers? Well, um, that's difficult. I, 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 I would say I would just pick three, three um, that I think about a lot, um, and that's uh, Henry Jackman for 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 starters, <laughs> um, because I think he's a very underestimated theme writer. He he writes great themes if he has the the opportunity to do so. Um, that's what I like about his music. Uh, I also admire Alexandre Desplat. Um, I think he controls the orchestra like it was an instrument, and uh, which it is, of course. But but the way he does is is a very is a very magical thing, and 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 there's so much going on in the in the in the orchestra. Uh, I like that very much. And then there is Chris Velasco. Uh, he isn't talked about uh, uh, so often, but uh, he has a very well structured uh, way of composing, uh, very clear music uh, with big fat sound if needed. And yet there is an old school. Uh, core. Um, that's what what I like about uh, him. Uh, his his game scores are amazing, and uh, I'd, I'd like to hear him uh, provide the soundtrack to a large scale movie project. That would be nice. Yeah, that really would. Um, I've heard some of his music before, and he's he's a really uh, fantastic composer. Uh, so he is definitely. So yeah, that's that's really good. So. Uh, my next question for you is how did you arrive at the sound for the bat murderer and if you could explain for that well uh Batman has always been a kind of a period piece I think it's it's not the in in the now it's not it's not in the 70s it's not in the 50s uh, but there's a lot of elements associated with um, let's say 1960 to 1980 and the and the comic uh, has been released in 1970 something um, and uh, that's why I I tried to to establish some kind of uh, old-fashioned uh, 70s style with references to, to 1960 uh, movies to Bernard Herrmann, who was very active in this in this um, period, and it's a, basically a crime story. Uh, that's why I I went uh, I came I came to the conclusion that Bernard Herrmann might be a, a good inspiration for that, and that's why I used a lot of chromaticisms and well placed dissonances, um, 
um, to make to make to find the right tone for for this. Uh, the, there's also there's also a, a predominant instruments that I that I like to use um, for a particular composition, and in this case it was the brass and and the trombones in particular and and uh not so much the strings and 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 i know uh, bells and harps and so uh it's all there but there's there's um an emphasis on the on the on the brass section uh, i would say and and i also uh chose a synthesizer that i used for dialogue scenes and new lead scenes you know when some new uh lead um is found or a clue um, is detected and and then then there's those dialogue scenes that become more interesting if you add something to the sound that keeps it going. really like uh how like i was reading some of the actual comic last night and then before that i had sampled some of the tracks of the bat murderer and it just really fits really well with that story and i like how there's that you know that just the the elements that you add to it are really uh, fantastic, and even the themes that you use. Uh, like, can you tell me about any of the themes that uh, really stood out to you? Yes, uh, there's there's basically uh, three themes in the in the in the suite uh, or in the in the in the score, and they are also combined in the in the in the in the end credits end credits suite. Uh, it's uh, the 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 theme for for Batman. Uh, obviously, and there's also a theme for Talia and um, for the Creeper, who plays a major role in this in this story. And um, there's also a kind of motive for Ra's al Ghul, um, but it's used uh, sparingly and and not 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 that often. And um, 
the thing, the interesting thing is that I decided uh, to to introduce the Batman theme um, kind of late in the story. There's there's uh, the beginning, then there's uh, the the uh, the talk with the commissioner and 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 a lot of things going on, and it's uh, not until Batman reveals himself during the Scala robbery um when the batman theme uh is introduced for the first time and from that point on uh then the batman theme is used regularly as a motive or as a theme So one of the things uh, that I like to ask the different composers that um, I interview is if you had a dream job to compose for a major film or TV from the past or present, what would it be and why? Uh, from the past, it's definitely uh, Lady Hawk. I don't know if you know the uh, the movie. It's uh, also from the eighties. Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, um, it because it's all there. There's fantasy. There's adventure. Love. Uh, it's 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 a wonderful uh, movie. Um, and I'd love to see what symphonic film scoring would bring to this movie. As you know, there's uh, this Alan Parsons uh, did the soundtrack. To to, to Lady Hawk, and um, I I don't know I I, I always found it uh, I don't I, I I don't want to say uh, misplaced but uh, but it always uh, I found it interesting as in, it was an interesting choice and it, it certainly makes something sp special uh, with the movie but. It's not what I would go with, and I just, I just love to see a symphonic uh, score for this for this movie, and that's why I would score that if I had um, the chance to 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 score a, a movie from the past. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, that I would agree with that. Um, so, what about um, if if you were to score something in the present? Uh, what would it be? In the present, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. As a, a more realistic thing, uh, I'd love to to score a Telltale adventure. You know these Telltale adventures from Xbox or or PC. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, that would be that would be amazing. Uh, working hand in hand with Jared Emerson Johnson, I, I read about him and and I, I listened to his scores as far as they are available. Um, it's 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 wonderful. He has a very crystal clear uh, approach uh, to to what he does, and it's very on the it's very dead on uh, what he does to 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 the, up to the task. And he, he's he's great, and I'd, I'd love to work with him hand in hand. That would be something. <laughs> All right. 
Well, uh, my next question is, what collaborations stand out to you with people you've worked with? Yeah, generally working sample based, you know, that's my 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 expertise. Um, work, um, composing for for sample based um, productions, uh, there's little interaction with real people. Uh, that's that's uh, the downside. Um, you you don't have to do with so many people uh, if you are if you are um, uh, working on that on that uh, with samples um, but uh, I had a project once uh, it's, it's uh, a few years past in in 2000, 2004 I worked f uh, with or for a, song, a singer songwriter Julia Warner uh, to to arrange her songs a very uh, talented very gifted songwriter um, that was not only huge fun it was also a completely new challenge it that was ex it expanded my music Musical Horizons. Uh, we sat together, created beats and riffs and all kind of things that were not really related to orchestral film music writing. Uh, it's, it's it was something very new for me, and and in this way developing new. Um, things uh, new ex finding a new expertise in something you haven't worked uh, before you haven't done before uh, that was that was very very exciting and and um, an expanding uh, thing yes mm -hmm. another composer that I got to talk to was Sharon Farber have you met her no I haven't I have the interview in my podcatcher I haven't heard it yet <laughs> Okay, because um, she also talks about uh, Julia Warner and um, her influence on her as well. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, so, my next question for you is: uh, You've done some scoring for an RPG um, and that type of game. So, what have you enjoyed most about doing even that type of composing? That was a very, very intense thing, yes. I did one role-playing game music for a game called Araklia, which is a pen and paper role-playing game, you know, the kind of uh, which uh, uh, Elliot and his uh, friends and his brother play at the beginning of E.T. Uh, <laughs> and um, um, it's uh, the music was supposed to enhance particular moods and, and, and uh, things the game master creates through his or her narration. And um, that was a tough challenge. I, I composed 27 short cues, some of them playable in a loop, and uh, each of uh, them for a particular mood or for a particular event. Uh, that was uh, some some something different than the game music th uh, that has been there before, because it was not meant as a wallpaper music. As it's not something uh, that you that you play all the time that you leave running in the background. It's uh, rather to enhance the drama, uh, to to find a certain. Um, mood or for a certain uh, for a certain event um, there's a, for example a cue uh, called suddenly uh, which opens with a sharp brass chord uh, to really frighten the, pl the players
Oh yeah, that would that would definitely um, alter the perception of the game and probably make it more interactive. I would think. Yes, it 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 keeps uh, it it takes the player uh, the players uh, more into it draws the players into the world into the into the narration and that's uh, what role playing is about and uh, the music uh, plays this role uh, quite quite nicely uh, if if you if you uh, if you can manage uh, that the music doesn't interfere with the narrative this is which is quite hard because with a film or 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 a video game uh, you have more than one channel to share um, you have visuals you ha and you have um, um, yeah dialogue or whatever and in this case you have only this this one uh, audio channel and you share this with the game master so if if the music uh, is too obtrusive um, it might interfere uh, in a way that you're not uh, that that is not not uh, contributing to to the whole thing it was a fun project uh, it, it it turned out quite well and I, I i had the i had the opportunity to try out the different composition techniques as well like clusters and uh, incorporating whispered words and uh, such things
All right. Uh, that's that's really good. Um, my next question is, uh, what projects are you currently working on? And can you tell me about any new projects you'll be working on? Yes, there's a symphonic composition that I did in 1999. It's uh, called Goldfall. And I'm rearranging that one for small string ensemble and harps. Uh, because uh, uh, we hope that it might be released as part of an audiobook. It's actually a fantasy novel and um, there's plans to release it as an audiobook and that that would be the the music uh, soundtrack to uh, to the to the yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh that that would be really good. I and do you know when they're planning on releasing the audiobook for it? No, we are we are now in the in the negotiation uh, phase and and we are trying a few things and I'm I'm just setting up uh, um, a mock-up or something like that um, for to play uh, to the producers and let's see what what comes what comes of it. That sounds good. Well, the my next oh go ahead. The the next question I have for you is with your field of sample-based composition, what are some of the pros and cons of that type of composing? Yeah, there's obviously pros and cons. Um samples nowadays uh, are really good. Uh, they are r- really good and even trained musicians can't tell them apart from real instruments and and real performances if played uh if properly used and mixed well um the proper use of samples is a key element for creating a convincing music you have to know a thing or two about orchestration otherwise even the best samples won't bring good results um the the um, the con uh, uh is uh, the human element is the hardest to emulate and and uh, you can only do so to some some degree samples cannot substitute the live performance of an orchestra but they can get pretty close if the composer uses all his means to create living breathing music there's breath controllers faders pedals and all kinds of controllers that can add to i, I call it the flow of the music which i think is far more important than uh, a dense orchestration 
or using uh, 25 instruments at once and uh, I don't know 72 tracks um, that's I think I don't think that's that's uh, a key element I think it's it's uh, having this flow of music which which gives you the feeling it's alive and and breathing and and um, composing for samples is is it is a different thing than composing for orchestra for a real orchestra unless you don't want to end up with phrases that simply don't work out Considering that means uh, composing uh, also limits your range for sample with composing with samples limits your range uh, and your choices to what works with your particular sample library that you use and having more libraries at your disposal also widens your options. Um, but uh, there's there's the there's some point uh, where you have to say okay I can I cannot get that right with samples it it won't work out well and that's where real orchestras uh, come uh, play play a role and that's where you should turn to a real orchestra and um, what happens now is many composers use both things uh, I haven't done it before because it's also a matter of budget. Um, to 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 have to have the the orchestra by um, with samples and then there's uh, key uh, instruments with a live uh, real player like a cello or something like that that works uh, that works well. Mm -hmm. Who have you worked with? I, I have I, I work with the Vienna Symphonic Library samples, uh, which are uh, among the highest rated samples on the market. Uh, they are rec recorded uh, pretty dry and, and shockingly realistic. Uh, they are also hard to master. Uh, it's more like sound programming than just playing and recording music, but it but it really pays. Uh, to 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 get to know them and and they already sounded fantastic back in 2005 when I did my first steps with that kind of um, uh, samples and yeah, just imagine what they're capable 12 years later. Well, that's that's good too. Well, let's uh, 
let's shift gears a little bit. I'd like to ask you, with this very show, I introduced the new intro for Soundtrack Alley. Can you please tell me about the different stages that went into the process for the different iterations of the theme, and how did you arrive at the final version? Yeah, um, it's a podcast music generally is, is a very tricky thing. You have little time and uh, there are high standards because listeners hear the same music in each episode. No, uh, and, and they have no and, and, and you as a composer have no visuals to draw inspiration from. So you're basically starting uh, out with nothing. Um, in this case, you know, uh, uh, we, we, we started out with uh, what 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 was it that you that you wanted me to do? Uh, I think it was like a total recall and kind of some James Horner thrown in there. Yeah, 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 yeah that that's it. And and total recall and Horner. Yes, um, uh, I I had a first version that was a shot in the dark, uh, uh, a rather serious uh, piece of music, uh, low key. There was a bit of gravitas in there, but ultimately uh, too little energy and not uplifting enough. Uh, and uh, uh, I sent it to you, you know, uh, and it didn't work out th that that well, and that's and that's okay because um, it m might be that there were a few elements that movie movie lovers would have appreciated, but you were right to reject it, and, and it was okay because it was meant as a common ground to start a discussion, and that's that's basically what happens with you when you start a project, you 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 create something and uh, you give it a wave, and you and you start a discussion about. It and it's it's a rare thing uh, to to meet the demands with the first uh, attempt. And in this case, uh, for the Soundtrack Alley podcast music, uh, I then remembered uh, Jerry Goldsmith's appreciation for temp tracks. Uh, he, he said so in, in some interviews that uh, many composers hate those temp tracks, but he liked them because it gave him an, uh, a very clear idea what the director or producer or whoever um, commissioned the, the music um, what he or she was looking for and and that's that's what i did here too and and you told me it's got to be like back to the future and uh, you told me it's got to be like david cosina's theme for the cinematic sound radio show and uh, from when when i when i listened to those two um, pieces of music it was perfectly clear to me where we would go it was energy it was rhythm it was rousing brass and a dancing bass line and and that's uh where where what i what i wanted on, uh, to do and i developed two themes um just played them with layered instruments uh 
uh, and and I sent them to you and let you choose which way to go. One was rather classical, old-fashioned, Russia-like, and the other more goldsmith-like. <laughs> two two themes or uh two versions are uh really unique in their own way so how did <laughs> how did you uh flesh out the like orchestration and stuff yeah uh from the, when when i knew where to go it was basically uh, um how should i say uh, a matter of craft um I, I I made I made the orchestration complete and I balanced the instruments uh, one one against the other and and I did uh, some mixing on different speakers and headphones because I assume a pod, your podcast will be listened to uh, using um, mobile phones or uh, smartphones. Um, and and stuff and uh i uh, yes that's that's what i did i i i i did the mix and i hope it turned out well and i hope you and enjoy it and i hope listeners will enjoy it yeah it's it's really fantastic to me um so my next question for you is i'd like to know more about the two movie scores that you've done on able danger as well as incog can you tell me more about the process you went through with those scores and how you arrived at the cues you've composed for them? And also tell me about your experience with the director of both films and how your interaction went with the film, two film directors or even the cast.
that was a funny thing uh, for Able Danger, uh, which was a feature film, uh, US US based feature film. Uh, I was approached by the director, who was also the producer, as as far as I remember. I was approached over the internet. He uh, had found samples of my music online. So uh, composers out there, uh, having your portfolio on the web is always a good thing. And uh, he contacted me for uh f and and wanted me to do a pitch for for able danger um uh for the airport uh, surveillance scene in particular Yeah, and then and then and that that pitch uh, turned out uh, successful. He fell in love with the sound and 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 with the with the feel of it, and yeah. So, um, your next area was in regard to a major influence with uh, Bernard Herrmann, wasn't it? It it was it was a kind of a film noir. Uh, Abel Danger was was kind of film noir, and and the the director wanted me to provide the symphonic parts of the score. Uh, what I didn't know at that time is that he had uh, two composers on the project, and he didn't uh, tell uh, either of them uh, about the other. Uh, but. Uh, Yes, uh, the, those things happen, and and you can always uh, learn something from from that. But it it didn't it didn't matter to me at that time uh, because I was very glad to have the opportunity to contribute to this movie, and uh, I did the not only the orchestral parts of the score. I went f uh, th through the movie from begin to finish and scored the entire movie. It, I did it uh, because I had the time. <clears throat> And because it was a, a very, I think it was a very good movie, a well-written movie, and I did the entire score, and it and it turned out really, really nice. In I did it in two weeks' time. That was almost eighteen minutes of mu of of music. Yes, I I I, I surprised myself <laughs> because it was my first, it was my first really uh, feature film. It was my first one to to hit those uh, timing. Uh, um, uh, those timing and uh, needs and 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 all that uh, things and I, I I I managed to do it in in two weeks time. That was that I was surprised by myself. I have to say, but um, the main the main theme uh, was should turn out more contemporary more contemporary than I thought. It combined old school elements with modern drum patterns. And there was again uh, uh, an emphasis on the brass section, and that that uh, that was a kind of cold and 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 intellectual approach. I think that I would uh, attribute to to Bernard Herrmann than to any other composer. Bernard Herrmann, and perhaps a bit of Goldsmith also in this score. Uh, 
Um, so your next project that you were working on was Incog. Now, tell me a little bit about that. Incog was very different. It was an independent short film and it was very uh, introspective and intimate, uh, very delicate or frail. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. Um, it, it, com it, it comprised of loosely associated scenes uh, and there was a demand for very tender, modest music. And um, also this director approached me over the internet and uh, I went with a childlike theme in, in, in three, four meter and... Uh, it, it that that was was uh, was what ultimately uh, um, convinced the director to go with me and my music. He, he found that uh, quite appealing and and fitting to the movie. And from that on, uh, it 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 uh, we we went with this theme um, as a as a core element. And it was a very difficult project uh, because. Almost everything I did was too much for the director. He, I, as, as soon as I, as as soon as I used, um, say, uh, f four or five uh, instruments at the same time, he would so he would already say, "Oh no, that sounds like Braveheart, and it's too much, and it's too much," and 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 that that yeah, it, it, it was funny at first, but um, uh, not so much when when it happened again. But but uh, again, it it was a it was a process of learning. Uh, uh, to 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 work with people and to respect their their opinion and their um, their sense for their own movie. It, I mean, it's it's his movie and he knows what what works out. And um, I think it worked out quite well in the end. We found, we found that 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 balance um, between that what he thought was uh, needed and that what I thought I could come up with and uh, and it worked out quite nicely in the end. That's fantastic. Um, so the last question that I have for you is, would you rather work with a large orchestra or a small one? And if you could explain. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's harder to write for a small number of instruments. I would say so at least, uh, like a quintet or a chamber orchestra, because... Um, to compensate for the reduced variety of sounds, which is obviously there, uh, you have to make use of all kinds of usual and unusual articulations and playing techniques. And in this field, samples are nothing more than a compromise. 
Um, that's why I, with working with what I have at my disposal, uh, prefer compositions for large orchestra. Uh, there, there you have a variety of sounds to draw from and it makes it easier to find that particular sound signature for a project, which I already mentioned that, uh, that Jerry Goldsmith was so uh, great at uh, finding. And on the other hand, you can also create very powerful energetic sounds and that's why I have a, a tendency to use to write for large orchestra. Well, that's that's really really fantastic. Um, I so much have enjoyed uh, the conversation we've had here. We've interacted several times over Twitter, over email, and uh, it's been a amazingly a wonderful experience um, each time. I just I really appreciate um, being able to interview you. Uh, that's that's uh, very very nice of you. Thanks for having me, and and thanks to all movie music lovers out there for appreciating what we composers do. It really means a lot. Thank you, Randy.
It was a real pleasure being able to interview Alexander Schiebel for Soundtrack Alley. He was an inspiration and truly wonderful. Chris, what did you think of that interview? Well, first off, Randy, thank you so much for having me on your show. This is a huge treat. I've been a fan of yours since I found you, and you do a great job. I thought Schiebel really, really is a master, and you really hit upon some great questions that you asked. I, I really felt, you know, he was just very matter-of-fact with his work. You could just see the passion, but he was, you know, he, he kind of takes it natural. Uh, it, when you interviewed him, did you expect that particular tone that he gave? I almost felt like, you know, he was uh, just that passion that consumed him. Did you think he, did you expect him to have that much um, passion with what he does in his work? Actually, yeah, I, I actually do. Because since talking with him, um, I've noticed more and more that uh, he has definitely followed not only me, but he also follows Eric Woods on Cinematic Sound Radio. And um, he's become very interactive with uh, the soundtracks uh, that are talked about on Twitter that is within kind of my scope of soundtrack friends on Twitter. And uh, he's actually become more open about how he feels about a certain motif or a certain cue. And... um, and it really shows that he is very passionate about music and being able to score. And uh, he has a real passion for it. And it's just really fantastic that uh, all the music that he has, even on his website, and it's a very professional website. Everyone really should check out xanderscores.com because it has a phenomenal amount of information. He even has, he had asked me before, doing the interview if he could put up the preview for the new intro for soundtrack alley and um and that gets my podcast noticed even more as well because the more people hear about him the more retweeting and more sharing that he gets his mode of work or his uh career can even take off even further to say hey this is a really good composer so I thought it was really, really fantastic. Well, I certainly admire his craftsmanship, and I, I just marveled at all the tracks that he included. And there was more, it was more voluminous when you said, well, here's what he has for this. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. Maybe I'll have a few tracks. But no, this, this had probably twice as many music that, that I, I could have anticipated there. I really yeah. love particular tracks like uh, The Gala Robbery, uh, mm-hmm. Circus Investigation, just really a bucket of stuff that really fit the mood of the comic book artwork and the storytelling. It was a great, great blend between the two mediums. Yeah, I thought it was really nice to have that. And as I read the comic, um, I really thought about the music and sometimes I'd play that music just to kind of get in a better mood uh, for reading that section of the comic. And it really was beneficial. And I really enjoyed it, how he just, you know, he had a very singular style of how he wanted it to go. And, um, and I just, yeah, it just turned out beautifully. What's really cool about this, for me as a Batman fan, one of my favorite Batman villains is Rachel Ghoul. And I think 
I share a lot of opinions with others who also like racial gold Batman stories is this. The stories that he appears in tend to be really cinematic in scope, which is kind of funny to say that with regards to a comic book, but you're dealing with a lot of uh, broad plots and just the villain always has the upper hand seemingly throughout except till the very end. And just seeing the thought and how Batman goes from place to place and everything else here, it's almost anytime you have a racial story, you could think, Oh, this could be adapted to a movie. And when he composed this work, I felt like I was thrust in almost that setting. It was really good. And even the detailed smaller short pieces like escape and Batman on the news, I thought, Nothing was really a throwaway or a waste here. Every every little piece, every note, every intricacy of this work was really tied into this comic story. This was outstanding. Yeah, it it really it blew me away too because I was like, I didn't even know they made a score that went along with a comic book, and it probably was a very early. Uh, it was really innovative for the time of what it is. And then now, I mean, even today we're getting um, in different media through audible or even through marvel.com. You can get now these dramatic uh, story readings, but with music and different voices that kind of tell that story through audio. And it's, like a whole radio drama uh, that have encapsulated through uh, the medium. And it's just really, really good. Absolutely. All right. So uh, what we're going to do is today we're going to talk about the bat murderer from DC comics. And before you review that, Chris, uh, let's hear a word from one of our friends. Hi, this is Batman. Whenever I lose my memory, I head over to the BatmanUniverse.net and check out the podcast, Bat Books for Beginners. The Bat Books for Beginners podcast breaks down and analyzes all of my adventures so I can remember how to get to the Batcave, which Robin I'm working with, and where I parked the Batmobile. Chris and Jerry, the hosts of Bat Books for Beginners, are honest about how well I'm serving the citizens of Gotham. Sometimes, too honest, I'll have to talk to them about that. If you wake up one morning and think you might be Batman and have just lost your memories, go over to the BatmanUniverse.net or iTunes and check out Bat Books for Beginners. Now, if I could just figure out who this old man cleaning the Batcave is, that would be great. I asked my friend Scott Snyder and he didn't know. Don't be a supervillain. Visit the BatmanUniverse.net and listen to Bat Books for Beginners, also on iTunes. You'll be glad you did. Bat Books for Beginners is part of the BatmanUniverse.net Bat Family of Podcasts. Don't listen to Bat Books for Beginners when operating heavy machinery or juggling. If you listen to Bat Books for Beginners for more than four hours, call your doctor. Bat Books for Beginners is part of a balanced diet. All right, Chris. So why don't you give us a synopsis and review of the different elements of this comic story? Well, thanks, Randy. It'd be a huge honor for me to do so. I really, really appreciate it. Okay. That Murderer starts in Detective Comics number 444. Writer was Len Wein. Artist is Jim Aparo. 
Our story opens with Commissioner Gordon telling an officer not to turn on the bent signal. Gordon tells him what happened the night before. Top hitmen from the country are arriving in Gotham City, and he has asked Batman to investigate. This led the Dark Knight detective to a gala and a $1 million diamond heist. Batman takes out the culprits except for two. The masked female leader of the gang reveals herself as Talia, and she throws Batman a gun. As Talia flees, the gun goes off and hits Talia in the back, seemingly killing her. At GCPDHQ, Commissioner Gordon tells Batman that he's compelled to arrest him, but the Batman says he's being framed and escapes. As Gordon finishes recounting his story to the officer at the beginning of this book, the remaining at-large culprit is dropped on the bat signal with a note, compliments of the Batman, the bat logo. Story continues. Chapter two, Detective Comics number 445, writer again, Len Wein, artist Jim Aparo. The title of the story is Break In at the Big House. TV newsman Jack Ryder tells of Batman's crime to a Gotham populace. Commissioner Gordon asks Bruce Wayne's help in bringing Batman to justice. Batman breaks into a prison to confront an incarcerated Ra's al Ghul, who does tell Batman that he, indeed he is responsible. But suddenly, Ra's pulls out a gun and he shoots himself, seemingly killing him. The gunshot draws out guards and Batman escapes, only to have the mystery deepen. Chapter 3, Detective Comics number 446, Slaughter and Silver. Again, writer Len Wein, penciler Jim Aparo. A statue is being unloaded in a warehouse in Bruce Wayne's presence, and it's up for an auction. The statue is accidentally broken, and a skeleton is revealed. Clues lead Batman to a mob boss named Sterling Silversmith and his men. In a fight, Batman is knocked unconscious and tied to a chair, but he manages to escape and overpower the villain before Silversmith can shoot Batman's head. The story continues. Chapter 4, Detective Comics number 447. Enter the Creeper. Writer Len Wein, penciler Ernie Chan, inks by Dick Giordano. Jack Ryder, a.k.a. the Creeper, decides to bring Batman to justice. Batman investigates the grave of Ra's al Ghul to find it empty, and then seemingly occupied by his body again. Alfred informs Batman that a strand of lion's hair was found on the gun that shot Talia. This leads Batman to the Gotham City Zoo. There, he is confronted by the Creeper, but Batman convinces the Creeper that he is being framed after a battle and the death of a hood who was killed before he can talk. Chapter 5, The Conclusion, Detective Comics number 448. Bedlam Beneath the Big Top. Writer Lynn Wein, Hitzler, Ernie Chan, inks by Dick Giordano. Batman goes undercover at a circus where the lions are present. Upon finding suspicious activity, he sheds his disguise and confronts the head of the circus, only to be knocked out before he can take him on. When the Batman revives, a snake charmer reveals herself as Talia, and confronted by the rest of the League of Assassins, who were seemingly in disguise as circus performers. We discovered that this was a ruse, and the murder rap was to discredit Batman and to persuade him to join the League of Assassins. Batman refuses Raja's offer and fights the group. The Creeper assists, and Ra's al seemingly perishes in a fire in the aftermath. The end. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's some background, Randy, if you're interested for the story. Perhaps your listeners might find it interesting as well. Yeah. The story about Murderer originally appeared over five issues in Detective Comics, starting with Detective Comics number 444. That was covered dated way back in January 1975, and at the risk of dating myself, I remember getting this off of a spinner rack at a 7-Eleven. This was going sequentially with the chapter concluding 
in Detective Comics number 448, which was covered June of 1975. Now, this was an interesting time on Detective Comics title. Detective Comics numbers 444 and 445 were 100 page issues and they had a cover price of only 60 cents. And with yeah. number 444, only the Batman chapter was original material. The rest of the issue had reprints of older stories featuring the characters Robin the Boy Wonder, Star Hawkins, the Elongated Man, Kitty Trinity, uh, a character by the name of Sierra Smith, and Roy Raymond TV Detective, among others, including a feature called Manhunters Around the World. And in issue number 445, the Batman chapter was original, but unlike the preceding issue, so was the Robin story. And get this, it was drawn by none other than Mike Grell. So oh, I wow. hope that, yeah, I hope that Darren and Ruth Sutherland are listening, and perhaps this brief Robin story will be covered in a future podcast of the episode of Roller World. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, that's a podcast that examines the work of Mike Grell, and that's a podcast I think both you and I would highly recommend. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, now, in this one particular comic book, the other characters appearing in reprinted stories was the aforementioned Star Hawkins, Elongated Man, Boy Raymond, but there was also a Dr. Midnight uh, Golden Age reprint and a couple of stories from a comic book called The Gangbusters. Now, interestingly enough, the 100-page stories would end by the next issue, Detective Comics number 446. They also changed the price point as well. Uh, now, along with other DC comics that were 100 pages at the time, the comic our comics now are 36 pages. This now went from 60 cents to 25 cents. Batman, of course, was still the main feature. And in number 446, uh, there was a Hawkman and Hawkgirl backup story. Hmm. And, yeah, and then 447 had a Robin backup story. But by the time we got to the chapter's end, we didn't get any backup story at all. This was <laughs> They said, well, we're going to stop this, so they're going to just make a solo feature for now. That works. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they continued it on. It was sort of a semi-regular thing to have uh, recurring backup features. But for whatever reason, just this last uh, chapter had uh, only one one story. Now, to my knowledge, and someone out there can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think prior to this story, there was a multi-chapter Batman story in sequence this long, continuing over five issues in Detective Comics. Now, note I said Detective Comics, not Batman. Now, yeah. I know in the 1960s, there was like an outsider storyline, but that was over different issues and not in sequence. And I tell you, Randy, when I was a young reader reading this, this was something pretty unique and something I wasn't used to. Now, I was a young guy and my limited reading was used to having, you know, one issue, one self-contained story. And I thought, you know, a multi-story story, it, it, Lord only knows what an older reader would have thought back then, you know? Yeah. They, they would continue with some other multi-story arcs later on over the Batman title. I remember one in the uh, 1976, there was a multi-one called the Underworld Olympics. And around 1977, there was a four-parter called uh, Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed? And those were some really, really good, interesting multi-pirate story arcs. Unlike the comics of today, where I think everything is just a huge, big arc, which later gets collected in the trade. Yeah. I did a little research. Now, individuals of this comic book, you know, if you're going to look for them, they might be a bit expensive and hard to come by in the back issue market. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. Um, yeah. Like when I acquired the first issue of this whole story, it was like, it was almost, it was about, well, I paid about seven bucks for it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Fortunately, they did collect and reprint the story, and that's in a Best of DC Digest. Now, that was cover dated back in February of 1981. Back at the time, it was only priced at 95 cents. Uh, the Digest cover reprinted the Jim Moparo artwork for Detective Comics, number 448. 
Now, this might be the route to go if you're looking for this work. Online vendors uh, appear to have this going for around $5 to $35 at the time of this recording. Yeah. But a lot of them had them for about 10 bucks. So I don't think that's too bad for something that's that old and contains, you know, a multi-part story. So that's not too bad. Yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead. No, I was just going to get into our creative team, you know, just uh, – one thing we should really acknowledge the people that did the work of the comic. Uh, we had Len Wein and he was one of my favorite writers. He recently passed away. Uh, Wein, excellent writer, but um, now just to note though, at this time in detective comics, his writing process were no slouches either. This was an era when the detective comics came out here in the seventies, you had Archie Goodwin was a writer. And <laughs> before this issue of, uh, 444 you had 443 and it was a great great comic with batman teaming up with a paul kirk manhunter of all things wow and before that yeah before goodwin came on you had the classic story called night of the stalker which i highly recommend and that was written by steve Englehart, and that was in tech of comics number 439 so this is a really really golden age well not quite golden age but this was to put it this way, this was a really, really great run, if you will, of uh, Batman stories, and maybe a little underrated. Uh, let's see, Len Wein, uh, I mentioned him. He passed away this past September 10th at age 69, unfortunately. Boy, I tell you, Randy, it would take a whole podcast to go over to his contributions. Of yeah. Comic books. Um, you know, he became a fan of mine at an early age. He was a fan of comic books himself uh, at a young age. He co-created numerous characters, perhaps most recognizable for DC. He co-created the Swamp Thing. And over at Marvel Comics, he uh, co-created Wolverine. Now, Len, we now, also created... Did, Go did, ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to ask, did he write... He wrote the whole story, didn't he? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had different artists, but Ween was the sole writer for this. Nice. Yeah, That's very really nice. Good. Yeah, and it, 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 this, I, I'm trying to think, this was probably on the heels of the uh, uh, Demon Saga over in Batman. This could conceivably be the uh, second big arc that Ra's al Ghul appeared in, uh, with uh, the prior story in Batman being written by Denny O'Neill and uh, drawn by Neil Adams. This maybe not didn't measure up quite that way but by all means you know if you're a racial goals fan i thought this was an, an interesting story with an interesting creative team now i really like the artwork too um jim aparo did the artwork for the first three chapters he did some outstanding covers the cover he did for 444 is particularly striking because in the foreground you see talia facing the reader and she's in this purple uniform and we see her body and facial reaction of being shot in the back and in the background you got batman firing the gun that shot her and the images are just contrasted by this bright orange moon against a solid black background in the Detective Comics logo, which is colored yellow. Oh, boy. I tell you, Jim Aparo is frequently cited as a favorite artist. Um, you know, you ask anybody who really likes Batman, and, you know, I have to include him in my list as well. Just the fluidity of motion and the facial expressions are outstanding. You know, one thing that I thought was really cool with this, and I don't know if you noticed the two, Randy, you know, even the lettering here had a sharp distinction. I mean, there was a lot of bold-faced type with the, the writing that he, the print style that he used with this. I would agree. Um, yeah, there was there was some writing that was in normal print, but then there was a lot of bold print that would bring out, like, different words uh, in the terms, like, on... Enter the Creeper, the very first page. It says, you, in like one scene, there's this guy talking. And he's like, you're wrong. 
the Batman, and you know, <laughs> those words are all in bold, bold caps, and then it says, just couldn't have done what they say he did, you know. Yes. Yes. Just <laughs> and the it's emphasis like, placed everywhere, yes. It. Yeah, you you get where they're trying to emphasize those words to to really show that Batman is a hero. He's not the villain there. Oh yeah. So yeah. Now let's see. Um we'll go back to Aparo's art in a second. You know, he was really you know, really, really good. You know, I, I think you, you, you found some stuff like this. Just want to mention her Chan. He did the pencils on the last two chapters. Chan did a little artwork on Batman in the seventies, as well as working on DC comics, horror titles of the day. He also worked on Marvel comics, Conan the Barbarian. Uh, Chan passed away uh, in 2012 at age 71. Mm-hmm. He was inked by Dick Giordano, Giordano, a master inker and a great artist in his own right. In my and yeah, he was a longtime editor of DC Comics as well from the uh, 80s to the 90s. And unfortunately, all the gentlemen have since passed away. Giordano passed away in 2077. Uh, Randy, I know you had some thoughts about the artwork. What did you think overall with this? Well, I really was impressed by the art. And for being such an older story, um, for Batman, it really gave you his signature style. Um, of what Batman was supposed to look like. And I mean, yes, currently we're getting a Batman that has short ears, but I am particularly a fan of Batman having longer ears. And I think um, Jim Aparo really did an amazing job with getting that look. And he had that signature style that really created um, Batman even not only for the 80s, but with um, Ernie Chan, he continued that work and really kept that signature style that went on with the 90s comics as well. Like uh, Nightfall was uh, one of the examples I thought of uh, with that particular style that he had. And then uh, Dick Giordano, he had one specific piece of art that really stood out to me that it was a picture of Batman and in the center of the picture you see young Bruce and his parents are laying there um, dead in in the alley and he's crying over his parents' murder and it just it really is a striking picture that um, it's dark, but you also have like the outline of Batman and uh, the blue and, you know, of what young Bruce Wayne would become. And it just, it really identified who Batman was and what he was to be. And I, I really appreciated that. And then I was really impressed that Jim Aparo also did work on the Phantom. And I love the Phantom and it's just, it's a really awesome story. And I just, I like how he would do that artwork because it was all done in black and white. They didn't, you know, do that, that comic in, in color. And so um, it was really impressive, impressive to me. Yeah. You know, I tell you, I remember uh, seeing uh, the Phantom as well. And, when I was a kid, it was a good thing to get because, you know, my mom remembered the Phantom when she was a girl. So if I wanted to pick out a Phantom comic book on the spinner rack when I was a kid, and I think, I, you know, uh, Charles of Comics was doing that. 
fan of in the 70s and I think mm-hmm. in the 60s as well. And I think you, you could find some of her artwork there. Uh, you know, and it was always just great stuff and you could see how his style developed. I remember even being mesmerized at a young age when uh, Jim Aparo did work on a title called Adventure Comics and he did artwork on the uh, feature called The Spectre which uh-huh. dealt with just some really, really um, bizarre, bizarre and villains getting their come up, come up and, you know, yeah. in various graphic ways and violent ways. And yeah. if you're the least bit curious of that, you know, some of the original issues might be hard to find, but I think they reprinted them in the eighties in the title called uh, wrath of the specter, which might be a little more affordable and they have some additional, uh, Aparo stories in there, but I would highly recommend if you if you have a, a mild passing interest in even Aparo, just to seek out some of his other artwork, not just on Batman. I know a lot of people are familiar with uh, A Death in the Family, where mm-hmm. uh, the Joker was responsible for the death until he was later resurrected of uh, the Jason Todd Robin, and I think a lot of people came into Jim Aparo that way, but this is a fellow who, who really did a huge body of work on Batman, so just don't limit yourself to a story here or there. I think it, this is something really worth seeking out. Oh, for definitely. All of yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then also with Ernie Chan, I didn't realize before that he had worked so much on Conan comics. Yeah. And you know, it, the, he was impressive. I mean, he oh my really gosh. could draw. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the Marvel comics Conan, the barbarian uh, really, really was a great feature. And, uh, had a health, nice healthy run there, but boy, oh boy. Ernie Chan, uh, very underrated, also worked on some of the DC Comics horror titles. Uh, just just very underrated and very distinctive style, very distinctive style. I, I really liked uh, how, how he drew Conan and just, you could just, you could just sense the dirt and the grit and the, yeah. just, the, just the evocative of the period there. It was really, really great stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can put it a better way. <laughs> um, and and one last point I'd like to make with Dick Giordano. Um, I was noticing like his level of work is also really large. Like, I mean, he goes from anywhere from Teen Titans to Super Friends to the Justice League to Batman. I mean, he was incredible. Yeah, if he wasn't penciling, he was inking, and just just some really really great stuff. I really liked his Batman in particular. Um, I wish he really did more work. You know, he always seemed you know very busy, and he would just more or less be a very, I, I presume a fast inker, a very very excellent inker. But boy, you know, I really liked his style. Now he he did great inks on Neil Adams' work, but man oh man, uh, Dick Giordano's solo isn't isn't bad either. Yeah, exactly. So. One of the few things I want to, I want to pick this part just a little bit. Um, This, this comic, there's a few things that just kind of stand out to me that, you know, it, it, it is uh, dated uh, for its time in a way uh, with, with these uh, odd points that come out, like with Raj Al Ghul um, killing himself in the jail. And it's like, well, why? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, why would he do that? And then um, blackmailing Batman to become a, an assassin, and and then even the story with uh, Sterling Silversmith, 
when I read that story, I was like, what does this have to do with the story at all? <laughs> yeah, I found that my I found that as well too, Randy, and you bring up a good point because it, it almost seemed like a throwaway chapter. I mean, we, we sort of get Batman sidetracked with, with trying to solve the mystery and another one drops in his lap with uh, this Sterling Silversmith stuff, yeah. you know, yeah. what, what an odd character, you know, and you know, he just, well, the gold market's going to be cornered. So I'll take care of silver, you know, he's yeah. <laughs> got a, a suit made of silver where bullets bounce off of it. And, uh, yeah, a weird cane and it was sort of like um sort of like a low-grade james bond villain if you will perhaps mm-hmm. i don't know it was it was really really uh interesting randy you mentioned something too which you said when you said kind of dated and i i, I didn't stop to think that but then boy oh boy you really have a point yeah uh, this some of some of the stuff really doesn't age well i know there was a nice touch with uh at the gala we had the, the two celebrities entered and they're called uh Roger Barton and Elizabeth Baylor, which is obviously a takeoff of uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. And yeah. You can you know, talk about being dated. I mean, you can go right there to the head, you know, who were, you know, by the seventies, I don't know if they were still quite as. Uh, quite as prominent. Yeah. Or as famous yeah. as they were maybe a decade earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's being fair, but you know, I, I think that's, that's how I took it even at a young age back then. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that, that got me about it was the scenes with the circus, um, it was very um, stereotypical of what they felt that circus people would look like uh, Mm -hmm. back at that time. And they probably did a little bit of research, but not a ton. And one of the main things that really got me about it was how the, the shortest person there, the small person, was actually Raj Al Ghul. Yeah. And I was like, is that some strange power that they just came up with to where Raj Al Ghul would change into this little man just for this story? Yes. <laughs> and it, it, to to, to uh, shed some light on this to the listeners, I, my synopsis didn't go into great depth in, for interest of time. But at the circus in the last chapter, Batman is chasing a little person. And due to this, um, hallucinogenic we batman is fooled into thinking that uh it's somebody small in stature when in reality at the very end we see that uh batman deduces because of his shadow and his footprints that indeed this is somebody who's actually taller and thus (laughs) harus you know the right race gets exposed and when we find out who the uh he was there live and all along you know just you really had to suspend your disbelief quite a bit in uh, yeah some of these chapters here most definitely so, so Chris, what, what rating would you give this book? Well, boy, I tell you, Randy, anytime you ask me to rate a Rachel Ghoul story, <laughs> you know, it's hard for me because he's one of my favorite villains. And what I, I will definitely concede there are major plot holes in this. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, this story even reminded me of a 60s episode of The Green Hornet, which was entitled Hornet Save Thyself where uh, Green Hornet in his civilian identity is Bert Reed. He's handed a gift and it's, it's a gun and it's at a birthday party, Bert's birthday party. And he's holding the gun and uh, a, he accidentally shoots a guest in front of all these party guests and he's framed for murder. And the Green Hornet with Cato, I mean, this isn't one of these uh, 
a big fighting episode. This is one that was well-crafted and well-written, yet the Green Hornet solves it within a span of a half-hour episode. Mm-hmm. Here it takes Batman <laughs> versus Rachel Gould the span of five stories to get to the bottom of a, of a gun going, seemingly going off and being framed for murder. And, you know, we should say that there was microcircuitry involved with the gun going off. Batman never actually pulled the trigger. It seemed like he did. Okay, so back to the rating. I have to throw in some bias here. This this mm-hmm. does have some plot holes. I'm kind of leaning between a three and a half and a three, but anytime I reread a story, I, I have to include some of my own little biases with it. Mm-hmm. Remembering reading it as a child and you know being taken with it, being taken by Aparo's artwork and the covers, which is a lot of saving grace with this. Bless Len Wein, he was a great writer, but a lot of plot points here. Can you tell I'm stalling, Randy? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say, boy, you know, I, I have to give it at least the three and a half out of five. I have um, to yeah, give it the yeah. three and a half. And actually, this was, this was an interpretive. Surprisingly for myself, um, I'm actually rating it a little higher than that. I'm actually going with a four. Okay. Uh, because I really liked the story. And despite the little flaky points that were in it, I thought, Raj Al Ghul did an excellent job uh, deceiving Batman and uh, having that kind of trickery with the with the coffin that at one moment he sees Raj Al Ghul in the coffin and then the next he's not there. And, uh, you know, it's just a really unique way of bringing out that storytelling and um, to bring out a story that lasted for five issues back in the late seventies, that was really an undertaking, you know, I mean, they had to really work on, all right, we got to really get this to be deep. And this is, you know, detective comics. So it is a detective story that Batman's trying to figure out who framed him, why, what was going on and all these surrounding issues. And so you have these twists and turns that exist in the, in the story. So, so overall really a good read. Um, but yeah, I, I would give it like a four out of five. So good to hear. Good to yeah. hear. Yeah. So Chris, um, I'd like to thank you for being on the show today. Um, it's been really great to well, talk about this Batman story. Well, thanks. I, I can't thank you enough for having me on, Randy. I, it was such a huge treat for me to talk about a Batman comic book from my youth. I, I really, really get off on doing that. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed being on your show, especially with this, uh, Alexander Scheibel's work. What a master. I mean, this was really great stuff. Randy, before I go, I just want to give a shout out to my podcast partner, Jerry Green, over at Bad Books for Beginners. Uh, yeah. And- have a listener's find there you can find me on twitter at btq on bat books you can also find me on the batgirl the oracle podcast i'm currently reviewing the batman adventures comic with that girl appearances in there on my next episode i'll be reviewing batman adventures number 18 and also look at uh the batman versus two-face animated movie you know a few comments on there randy before i go though i gotta give you a plug because you do another outstanding podcast called the gen 13 files and i think you do a great job there so please you know, go away, promote that show. Let me do it for you. <laughs> Please check this out. If you're, even if you're not a fan of the Gen 13 files, Randy does an excellent job. 
this is a great show. Randy, you blew me away with the deep dive you did on the first episode already. This, this was great stuff. I, and I can't thank you for putting that out there. Um, one thing that I'd like to do uh, in maybe say, if you could invite me onto your show, um, what I'd like to do is actually talk about the story that never was with Gen 13 and Batman. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I think I have some clown on that show, Randy, so I'm pretty sure that can be arranged. So that would be fantastic. Uh, let me so. I'll sure I'll pass it on to Jerry and at some you know, we, we can get this set up. So we'll just pass it on and then we'll pass it on to the powers that be with the Batman universe. We have to get their authorization. Oh yeah. I'm sure we can I can I'm sure that can easily be arranged. So All we right. would love to have you on as a guest. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. And again, um, I've got to give a uh, thank you to Alexander Shebel for the excellent interview on the show today. Um, you can find his work at xanderscores.com. Now, Xander is with an X, uh, not a Z. Uh, so it's X-A-N-D-E-R-S-C-O-R-E-S.com. And you'll find the preview of the new intro on his site, and he's really excited to be able to share that. I already retweeted uh, his tweet about it, and um, Chris, as you've already said, where people can find you, and... Um, you can tell I had to get my plugs out. I'm sorry. Hey, that's, that's great. <laughs> I appreciate it, and um, definitely, even for my listeners, you really should check out uh, Bat Books for Beginners, and I am really impressed with how Jerry comes up with the different uh, intros to your show. <laughs> I am too. I am so blessed to be part of a team where this guy brings his talent on every episode. And my jaw drops when he says, Chris, you got to hear this new promo. I'm not sure if I like it or not. What do you think? It is? Oh my <laughs> gosh, Randy. I am just blown away by his outstanding guitar work and lyric use of parody. Fitting something in from a classic rock track. And I love classic rock. And, I don't know how Jerry does it. He tells me he gets inspirations where he's living in New York City. Sometimes he'll see a sign or a scene or something or something will just pop in his head. He is such an amazing talent. And let me give a plug to him again. Yeah, you can follow him, listeners, at Professor Frenzy on Twitter. And boy, oh boy, he, this guy really, really brings it. What a talented gentleman and a great friend. So, yeah, yeah. thanks so much. Yeah, and so before we, we close out the show... What I'd like to do for all my listeners to share with them some of the themes that was actually used within the interview. Uh, I'm going to list these off and you can find these on uh, Alexander's website, uh, xanderscores.com. Uh, first of all, in the interview, I played Defender of the Crown, which was uh, one of the music snippets uh, from one of his early works. Uh, then I went on to play Confrontation at the Zoo from The Bat Murderer. Um, then we have uh, some of the pieces that were actually found within the score for The Bat Murderer, which is Alfred's News and Enter the Creeper, and then also Escape from The Bat Murderer. And then I moved on to... Um, two pieces of scoring music from 
Arachlia, uh, which is that RPG uh, game. Uh, one was called Suddenly, and the other one was called Ritual. And then moving on from there, I told the tale of Golden Fall, and it's from a movie called Golden Gold Fall, uh, and it came out this year of 2017. And then after that, I played The Ride from Children of the Desert. And then we played some of the early intros uh, for um, Alexander Shebel's um, compilation of what he was trying to get, get to for my actual new theme. And then from there, I went on with Able Danger, uh, these three sequences I use taken to Luther, airport surveillance, and to Times Square. And then from there, moved on to a movie called Incog. Uh, and I just used the main title there. And then to close out the interview, I used uh, the Bat Murderer end credit suite. And that was a really fantastic suite, don't you think, Chris? I was blown away. I, I this was something you would hear literally in, in, at the end of a movie and just the score. I, I could almost see the panels play out over each other. I could see in my mind the credits rolling as if written by Len Wee, written by Jim Aparo. It was it, what a treat to have this. And I wish the creators could have uh, heard this music. Uh, it was really, really uh, an honor and uh, just a privilege to hear it. And, what a gift that, that Scheibel has to provide this to a listener and just to create such a mood in your mind. I can't think of a better, better gift than the talent to share to an audience. Yeah. Um, and, and just, just as a, <laughs> I've been corrected on this uh, several times. So uh, I got to make sure that everyone knows that Alexander's last name is Shebel. Shebel, uh, my, my bad. No, that's all right. It, it looks like, Shibel, but it is actually Shibel. Um, I he, wrote a pronunciation key in my notes too, and you think I would have looked at it. I'm yeah, sorry. he he actually, uh, yeah, he pronounced it for me two or three times. So I was like, I got to get that right. <laughs> I think that so, was the one time I muffed it, and it would have, it would have to come at the very end of the show, of course. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. Um, so you can find me at soundtrackla.net, soundtrackla.podbean.com, at Randall Andrews one on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me at the Gen 13 Files on Twitter and also at the Gen 13 Files.podbean.com. Um, that is currently kind of where my website for that sits. I have a Facebook page for the Gen 13 Files right now, and um, I mainly just do little posts there now and again uh, since I, can, I only do that show once a month. Uh, it's kind of hard to keep up with it too too well. I, I'm a, I've got a busy, busy schedule. So, um, and then also you can email me at soundtrackalley at yahoo.com. So continue to rate and review this show on iTunes. It really helps me get noticed as a podcast in the search results. And again, thanks to Alexander Shebel for the excellent intro. And... To close out the show, I will once again play the intro. And so to bring this show to a close, and until next time, happy listening. 
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day.